And welcome back, everybody, to Exploring Faith and Pursuing Grace. Although I think it's better to not pursue grace. Uh, it's I guess you have to for a bit, but eventually you learn that if you slow down enough, grace will just catch up to you. So that's a secret. So it's kind of a, kind of a fun title of a podcast, Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. And that's what we've all tried to do, isn't it? Pursue grace. Uh, you just like running on a treadmill, though. You'll never get there. You just got to learn to let it go. Uh, God will catch up. Don't worry. The grace will catch up and overtake you. Then that's where the fun really begins. But for now, we're still pursuing. We're still chasing after, and maybe we'll all learn to slow down eventually. Anyways, welcome back, everybody. Just so glad that you could join me on this podcast. Uh, We are continuing our series of difficult questions. And today we are going to be talking about 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 21. Because if you are from a restoration movement background, you have undoubtedly heard about this passage. And it's the question, does baptism save? Does baptism save? And of course, if you are uh, familiar with the scriptures, you can automatically quote 1 Peter 3.21. Uh, if you've been familiar with this debate for any for any amount of time, uh, if you didn't quote uh, memorize it on purpose, you probably memorize it just through discussing it so much. And that is, the like figure were unto even baptism doth also now save us, not to putting away the filth of the flesh, but an answer of a good conscience toward God. And don't forget that last part through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's King James version for you, good old King Jimmy. And we're going to be looking at it from a couple of different versions today, but I just thought I'd give you that one since that's probably the one that is in your subconscious, right? It's probably the one that's in your subconscious. So I thought we'd introduce that first. Hey, before we get things kicked off, though, I want to make a couple of quick announcements. Um, next week's podcast is going to be with Dr. John Young. He is a uh, teacher at Amherst University. He is also uh, works at a Church of Christ in Tuscaloosa. He teaches some Bible classes and stuff like that over there. Uh, you, you should uh, you should read after him a little bit. He's got some stuff on restoration movement history, and you're not going to see eye to eye with everything that he says. Just like you won't see eye to eye with everything that I say in my writings. At least I hope you don't. Uh, but he's a really good guy with a great heart, and I think you'll appreciate what he has to say. Um, he's going to be with us next week to talk about restoration movement history. And then in two weeks after that, Shane Claiborne is going to come on to talk about uh, the death penalty. The episode's already recorded. I'll be posting that, though, in two weeks from next week. But now we've got baptism. Why talk about baptism? Well, in the Churches of Christ, if you aren't familiar with our group, baptism is one of our main two sacred cows. Like, if you had to put two things that are the most important to a member of a, of the Church of Christ, it would have to be instrumental music, or the lack thereof, and baptism for their mission of sins, what some people may call intelligent baptism. That is, not only do you have to be a believer in Jesus, but you also have to know why you're being baptized. Some would go so far as to say that unless you recognize that you aren't saved until the point of baptism, then your baptism isn't valid. That's what I used to believe and teach. I believed that if you were driving down the road uh, to go get baptized and you died in a car crash, boom, you are going to hell because you weren't baptized. That's literally what I believed. And if you actually go look up uh, World Video Bible School, there's a video on there about that very thing. Uh, Just very boldly 
saying, yeah, that that person would be lost. So it's not something I'm just making up. It's it's actually a video out there that's been watched by several hundred people, and it's an idea that's been taught either explicitly or implicitly from a the pulpits in the churches of Christ for years and years and years, right? It's not how we started, but it's where we ended up. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about baptism. I, I want to get to 1 Peter 3.21, but there's a principle in Bible study that you study easier passages and you use those easier passages to help you better understand the more difficult passages, right? Maybe you've heard of that. Um, so I'm going to walk you through some of those, quote, uh, you know, <laughs> easier passages. The first one, though, is Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, Paul is talking about the faith of Abraham. Now, this is important. Uh, let, me, let me preface this. This is important because in, in Colossians 2, okay, baptism is compared to circumcision. In Colossians 2, 11 and 12, he says, In him you also were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by the removal of the body of the flesh and the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. That's Colossians 2, 11 and 12, right? I say that to say, to go back to this other point here. So when Romans is talking about circumcision, keep in mind that for Paul, baptism is the new circumcision. It is the new way that we identify with God's people, right? That's important for you to understand as we read through Paul's opinion of how faith and works interact, all right? Let's take a look. Romans chapter 4. What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh? That is, according to man's ability, you could think about it. According to uh, what man can do, what man can bring about. Uh, Jesus was the son of David according to the flesh. This is what Romans chapter 1 says. That is, he was born uh, as a descendant of David and had a right to the throne because of that lineage. However, he was quickened, he was raised again there, according to the Spirit. That is, his claim to the throne, though it could come through his lineage from David, is is much more dependent upon him being raised again uh, from the grave, right? So, okay, Romans chapter 4, 1. What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. That is, if Abraham was able to earn his justification through his own ability, if his justification, in other words, came from him offering up Isaac or him being circumcised or him doing whatever, then yeah, he could boast about something, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, he says, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something do. So you remember Paul said in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The free gift. Now the word free is kind of redundant there because the gift is not something that you pay for. Okay? So to the one who works, he says, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something do. Now I know what you're thinking. Well, hang on, James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. Yes, I agree with you. Uh, I might do a whole episode on James chapter 2, but Paul in Romans 4 
is talking about the point of justification. When is someone justified? James chapter 2 is talking about people who had been Christians for who knows how long, and they weren't loving their neighbor as their self, uh, and they were showing partiality towards the, uh, you know, in dealing with the rich and the poor, and so they weren't living out their faith. James 2 was not talking about the point of justification. James 2 was talking about how a, a saving faith, a transformational faith, is going to bring about works. It's just going to. That's how it's going to manifest itself. And so it's, it's, uh, it's an oxymoron to talk about a faith that doesn't work. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about what is the original point of justification. When could someone say that they are saved if we're looking for a point in time? He says in verse 5, But to one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies, notice, the ungodly. This is not somebody who's already got everything figured out. This is somebody who could still be classified as ungodly, but, is who, put, but who has put their faith in Jesus. Such faith is reckoned as righteousness. Such faith is counted, is imputed as righteousness. That is, God sees that person as righteous. So also, now if you read uh, Christopher Stendhal in uh, the book Paul Among Jews and Gentiles, he has a little bit different take on what the word justification means, on what the word imputation means, or reckoned means. And so you should read his book, uh, Paul Among Jews and Gentiles. It might be a little bit confusing, but he kind of challenges this way of looking at justification uh, that that I found helpful and eye-opening. I just haven't, like, uh, you know, totally bought into it, I guess. Okay, Uh, let's skip down here just a little bit. In Romans chapter 4, verse 9, is this blessing, that is the blessing of the one whose sins are covered, uh, if you go back and read the passage there, is this blessing then pronounced only on the circumcised or also on the uncircumcised? We say, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness a couple dozen years before he was circumcised. I don't remember the exact figures, but if you go read Genesis, it was a good it was a good while there, right? He received the sign of circumcision as a notice this, it was a sign as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. He's emphasizing that Abraham was justified by faith long before he was ever circumcised. The purpose was to make him the ancestor of all who believe without being circumcised and who have thus and who thus have righteousness reckoned to them that is the whole purpose of this Paul says from Paul's perspective and Paul thought he had the holy spirit <laughs> remember when he said that i think too that i have the holy spirit um, so Paul's inspired he's an inspired writer and he says Abraham's faith is an example to us of how faith and works go together in other words, we work from the point of justification, not to the point of justification. He says, and likewise, the ancestor of the, of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but follow the example of faith that our ancestor Abraham had before he was circumcised. Okay, let's, let's read this passage, but think about baptism as parallel to circumcision. Is this blessing then produced only on the baptized or also on the unbaptized? We say, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned to him? Was it before or after he had been baptized? It was not after, but before he was baptized. 
He received the sign of baptism as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still unbaptized. The purpose was to make him the ancestor of all who believe without being baptized and who thus have righteousness reckoned to them. And likewise, the ancestor of the baptized who are not only baptized, but follow the example of the faith that our ancestor Abraham had before he was baptized. See, what we've done when we think about baptism like circumcision, instead of thinking about the relationship between Abraham and his faith and his circumcision, we instead think about the Pharisees' attitude, which says, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Acts chapter 15, verse 1, you see. That's the attitude we have. Unless you're baptized in exactly the way we tell you you need to be baptized, you can't be saved. That's comparing circumcision to the baptism to the attitude that the Pharisees had towards circumcision, not the way that Paul had towards circumcision. Paul's attitude was one is justified by faith prior to the point of circumcision. This is also demonstrated, by the way, in the household of Cornelius. Now, Cornelius was the first Gentile convert. Doesn't it make sense then that our conversions, the the, uh, the storyline of our conversions, would look more like what happened to Cornelius instead of more like what happened, you know, say to the people on the day of Pentecost who had already been uh, followers of God for their whole lives living under the law. Same with Paul, who had a clean conscience his whole life, right? So you look at the Gentiles, though, in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius comes and uh, he sends his servants to go to Peter so that he may hear words by which he will be saved. And then Peter, when he preaches, he never mentions baptism, does he? You look at uh, verse 34, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every people, anyone who fears him and practices righteousness is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John announced. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. How he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. See, he mentions baptism there, but it's John's baptism that he mentions. And remember, uh, Peter had been told that John baptized with water, but he would... Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with power, and that's what he's echoing here in his sermon. We are witnesses to all that he did both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living of the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was speaking, verse 44 says, the Holy Spirit fell all upon who, who heard the word. The circumcised believers, <laughs> the baptized believers, <laughs> that's not the point he's making, but you know, who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on unbaptized, uncircumcised out of the covenant Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Why does he say this in verse 47? Well, I have a, a sermon I gave. I'll give it, put it in the comments, called Baptism and Baths, in which I talk about the importance of baptism 
uh, to Jewish custom and even Jewish converts. If you look at the uh, IVP Biblical Background Commentary of the New Testament by Craig S. Keener, he has a little comment on this in 1 Peter 3.21 about uh, how baptism was a uh, Jewish custom that they would not only do before they went into the temple, but that they would also practice upon converts. So, of course, Peter, of course Peter says they need to be baptized. That's, that's what you do. And then he commanded them to be baptized in verse 48 in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. All right, a couple things about this. We can try to interpret this passage, but it's best just to let Peter do it, you know? So Peter says in verse 14 of chapter 11, the very next chapter, that the people told him that, uh, that Peter would preach a message to them by which their entire house will be saved. Where does he mention the need to be baptized in his message, in his gospel? In the good news that he preaches, where does he preach the need to be baptized? He doesn't reach that conclusion until after they are baptized in the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 15 that as he began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered what the, what the word of the Lord said, that John would baptize with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them, notice this, the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? Wow. Who was I that I could hinder God? Notice he never even mentions the fact that they were baptized in water. His emphasis is on baptized, baptism in the Spirit that they received when they believed his message. The same thing happens in Acts chapter 15, Okay. In Acts chapter 15, uh, Peter stands up and he says this in verse uh, 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. Believers. And that's what he told them. If you believe on the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. And God, verse 8, who knows the human heart, Notice, God, who knows the human heart, testified to them, that is, to the fact that they were believers in their heart, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and cleansing their heart, notice verse 9, by faith he has made no distinction between them and us. At what point was no distinction made between them and us? When they believed in Jesus and God sent the Holy Spirit, Cleansing their hearts by faith, totally consistent with what Paul preaches in Romans chapter 4. All right. Now, he ordered them to be baptized, Acts 15. I mean, Acts chapter 11. So did they have to be baptized? Well, yeah. When an apostle of the Lord orders you to, you better get baptized. (laughs) So is baptism necessary? Uh, What if one of them had dropped dead after confessing Jesus? after confessing Jesus, after receiving the Holy Spirit, after God testifying to their hearts, confessing Jesus through the tongues, you know, and he drops dead. Boom. Is he going to hell because he didn't get baptized? You tell me. How can you read Acts 11 and Acts 15 and reach that conclusion? How can you reach any other conclusion other than that they were justified by faith prior to their baptism and that justification was was, uh, confirmed through the Holy Spirit, because God knew their hearts and had cleansed their hearts through faith. How can you reach any other conclusion than that? That's what I, that's, 
my genuine question, right? So, 1 Peter 3.21, baptism saves. How, what do we do there? Let's go over there to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to switch uh, views here. On my, I got my Bible app open on my uh, computer here, so I've got to cheat a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, first off, there's some difficulties with 1 Peter chapter 3 because uh, the depending on what version you read, okay, you're going to kind of uh, be swayed in a certain way. <laughs> the King James says, of course, the answer of a good conscience toward God, right? So that's like you already have a good conscience, and baptism is what you do <laughs> if you have a good conscience. Uh, some versions say that it's an appeal to God for a clean conscience, like in the New American Standard I'm looking at here, an appeal to God for a good conscience. Uh, New Revised Standard Version is an appeal to God for a good conscience. But the NIV, on the other hand, reads a little bit different. Different. It's a pledge of a, of a clear conscience toward God. And that is a footnote in the New American Standard and in the New Revised Standard, is that it is a, an appeal to God from a good conscience. Uh, that's that possible translation is found both in First Peter three twenty one, in the New Revised Standard Version and the New American Standard. So depending on what version you choose to read, you could walk away with a potentially different interpretation, unless you keep in mind Romans four, Acts chapter ten, and a plethora of other passages that talk about salvation by faith and by confession in Christ. As you know, one, Romans 10.10 says, for the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. Some people say ace, uh, some people say uh, unto righteousness, but that same phrase, baptized into Christ, that word into is the same word you see here. For with the heart a person believes into righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses into salvation. In other words, you could... Uh, draw your circles on the board with, you know, one with uh, Christ in the middle and you have a little X for a guy outside of Christ and you could go to Romans 10.10. 10. A person believes resulting in righteousness, into righteousness. With the mouth, he confesses into salvation. So there's a lot of things in the Bible that say, that says that they save you, right? So just because we're studying one, 1 Peter 3.21, sorry, I'm getting all kinds of <laughs> off track here. The point is, is that there's a lot of Bible out there to point to. And pointing to one passage that, just from translation to translation, has some obvious difficulties with its, trans, with its translation, um, is not a good excuse to condemn every single person who doesn't believe exactly the way that you believe about baptism. That, that's, that's a poor reason to condemn other people. Uh, just because one passage may or may not say what you think it says, and it's difficult to translate on top of that, right? Okay, so let's take a look at it. First Peter 3.21, corresponding to that, that is, just as Noah was saved uh, by water, he was brought safely through the water, baptism now saves you. Now, he says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, or of dirt from the body, or of filth from the flesh. Now, I'm going to again reference my, my sermon, Baptism and Baths, but I think it would do you well, and we are going to do this, to go check out Hebrews chapter 9, because it basically says something pretty similar, right? 
He talks about in uh, Hebrews 9, 9 that the, uh, the, the tabernacle is a symbol for the present time. Uh, not our present time, but the Hebrews writer present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various baptisms, various washings. That's the word baptismois, which is a plural form of the word baptism, of course. These are regulations for the flesh, for the body, imposed until a time of reformation. Uh, verse 10, the word body there is the same word used in First Peter 3.21. It's the flesh. You might have heard this word, sarks, right? Anytime Paul talks about the flesh, this is typically the word behind it. Now, going on down a little bit in Hebrews uh, chapter 9, he says, For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. There it is again. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So to me, what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 3.21 is he's writing to his Jewish audience. He's writing to the, to scattered Israel, he says in the opening passages, not to Gentiles, but to Jews. And he says, baptism, is, is, he says, it's not the removal of dirt from the flesh. That is, this is not your typical old covenant washing, one of the many baptisms under the law. Instead, he says, this is an appeal to God from a good conscience or as the NIV renders it, which I think may be correct here, but a pledge of a clear conscience toward God. That is, baptism is your pledge to God that you are going to live according to uh, the gospel, model your life after Christ, because he has cleansed your conscience through your faith. Um, by the way, listen to the NIV here, 1 Peter 3.21. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Also, uh, rather, sorry, there's a highlighter mark and it messed me up. That now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So, what the NIV says is that baptism saves you, right? Because it is a, it's your pledge to God it's a pledge of a clear, clear conscience toward God, not an appeal to God for a clean conscience as if you did not have a clean conscience before you're baptized, but it is a pledge toward God from a clean conscience, from a heart that's been cleansed by faith. It is, God, you have saved me. You have justified me through my faith. I've made my confession to you, and now I'm going to be baptized to, to, uh, to be baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to show that I have, I've, I've put to death the flesh. I'm going to be quickened in the Spirit. And I'm going to follow you from this day forward. I think that's the point of 1 Peter 3.21. Now let me throw some more things out there for your consideration. First, let's focus in on the word saves. Notice he does not say baptism saved you. That is, at one point you were lost, then, you're then you were baptized, and now you are saved. Now you weren't saved until you were baptized. No, that's not what he says. He said baptism now saves you. In other words, baptism now presently saves you. The word saves here is present, active, indicative. That is, baptism is now actively saving you. This is not a removal of dirt from the body. 
But again, it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. That is, baptism is not a one-and-done event. Yes, you were baptized at some point in the past, but since baptism is a pledge that comes from a good conscience, right, through the resurrection of Jesus, it's a continual thing. It should always be in the back of your head. It's like what Paul said in Romans chapter 4 about Abraham's circumcision. The purpose of Abraham's circumcision was that it was a sign or a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith when he was uncircumcised. That's what baptism is. It's a sign or a seal of the righteousness that you have by faith before you're, before you're baptized. Now, is baptism necessary? Yeah, of course it's necessary. Uh, you're supposed to, uh, baptism is how you identify with the covenant community. Baptism is how you pledge your life to Christ. Baptism is how you mimic the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and commit to walking in news of life. But is baptism necessary in the sense that if you do not practice baptism in the exact way that I prescribed, you're going to hell? I don't think so. Is baptism necessary in the sense that if you have faith in Jesus but you were never taught about baptism, that you're going to go to hell? No, I don't think so. But it's necessary in the sense that loving our neighbor as ourself is necessary, that taking care of the poor is necessary. It's necessary in the sense that uh, in the sense that teaching the gospel is necessary, right? Those are all things that we are to do as Christians. Those are all things that we're to do as believers, and they're things that we're going to naturally do when we realize that uh, that those are things that God wants us to do. Remember, one of the most, uh, <laughs> the, the worst passage in the Bible, as my friend uh, Wes Roberts says, it comes from James chapter 4. Anyone then who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it commits sin. James 4.17. If you know that baptism is part of the Christian tradition and that that's how we identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and that's how we announce our life as believers, and that that's how uh, God works through us in some some special way and uh, raising us from the dead somehow. You know, we might not know how all, how all of this works, and you refuse to do it. There's something going on with you. You know, that's, that's, uh, that is more than just you don't want to get wet, right? There's something on a, on a deeper level that's going on with you that you need to really think about and, uh, and consider. Okay, let's go back to this uh, idea here in 1 Peter 3.21. Baptism now saves you. Again, present, active, indicative. This is something that is, uh, that is ongoing. It's not a one event in the past, but it's something that's ongoing. And that goes back to an idea that I've presented to you before. We can look at salvation like a light switch. A light switch is on, you're saved. A light switch is off, you're lost. We do the same thing with worship, by the way, and it's totally not right. Worship is a way of life. Uh, worship is not contained to the few acts that we do. Uh, but anyways, we look at salvation in this way. You were saved, uh, you were not saved, then you did something, now you are saved. Now there is a sense in which there is a point of justification. The Bible never says that's baptism. The Bible always says that's faith. All right. So faith is the point of justification. Faith in Christ is, is when the journey begins, so to speak. However, it's not, again, something that's just totally complete. When you do that, because Scripture says that you have been saved, like in Second Timothy chapter one, let's take a look at that real quick. Roundabout verse eight through ten, um, he says in verse nine, it's it's eight through ten, but we'll read verse nine. Who has saved us? That's past tense. He has saved us, Second Timothy one ten. But in the same way, we are being saved. The English Standard Version in First Corinthians fifteen 
says uh, in verse 2, by which you are being saved. That's present passive indicative there, similar to what you have in 1 Peter 3.21, whereas it's God that's doing the saving here. God is saving you. You are being saved by God. But then there's also the sense that you will be saved, even within 1 Peter itself, is one of the things that he says. He says in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 and verse 5 that salvation was ready to be revealed in the last time. That is, salvation is something that is past, something that is ongoing, something that is future. So to talk about baptism as the one act that the defining moment where you go from being not saved to being saved, first off, ignores what First Peter 3.21 says, which says that baptism is an ongoing thing. Baptism now saves you. It is saving you. Um, but it also ignores what else Scripture says about salvation when it connects it to uh, when it connects it to faith, when it connects it to confession. And so to limit it to one act is to, you know, really rob the gospel of its power. It's to put all the power in the water, and it takes the power out of what what God says the power lies in, and that's the gospel, and that's believing in the gospel. Now, let's continue talking about this baptism thing. Why do we believe the way we do about baptism? Well, the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. Well, yes, true. But one of the reasons we have such a strong emphasis on baptism, is we, why we have such a strong emphasis on baptism, is because of our predecessor, Alexander Campbell. Now I'm going to read you a couple of things that Mr. Campbell had to say about baptism. I'm holding in my hands right now a maroon book. On the, on the uh, spine of the book, it says Millennial Harbinger, and it, the date is 1837. This is a book in my uh, library here at the church, and it is Alexander Campbell's second major publication. His other publication was called The Christian Baptist, but we don't talk about that one because of the B word. Now, in 272, on page 272, in an article entitled Letters to England, um, Alexander Campbell has this to say. Let's see. We would indeed have no objections to cooperate in these matters with all Christians and raise contributions for all such purposes as, in our judgment, are promotive of the divine glory or of human happiness, whether or not they belong to our churches. For we find in all Protestant parties Christians as exemplary as ourselves according to their and our relative knowledge and opportunities. But we cannot form a confederacy with the troops of Satan or tax the subjects to sustain the Christian cause. And therefore, so long as all these associations openly and avowedly form a community on any one of these bonds of union, irrespective of, citizen, of, of citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, I say so long as they hold communion with profane and ungodly persons or with Gentiles of no creed and every creed because of a single point of coincidence, whatever that point may be, we cannot unite with them or sell under such a flag. So, in other words, if these Protestant parties, among whom Alexander Campbell finds Christians, whether or not they belong in our churches, as long as they're living uh, moral lives according to the gospel and, and the way that they see Scripture, that's great. Now, if they openly associate with people who he considers uh, a little bit uh, you know, contrary to, to the gospel, he wouldn't associate with them. But he says that he finds in all these parties Christians as what was the term there? As exemplary as ourselves. Now, a few months later, he got a letter in the mail from a, uh, from a kind sister from up north. 
and she was a little bit upset about what he said there because, <laughs> uh, you know, poor Alexander Campbell stepped on some toes. <clears throat> so she writes, this is in 1837, around July. Dear Brother Campbell, I was, as, I was much surprised today while reading The Harbinger to see that you recognize as Protestant parties, or rather, yeah, rather you recognize the Protestant parties, Protestant parties as Christian, the Protestant parties as Christian, you say you find in all Protestant parties Christians. Dear brother, my surprise and ardent desire to do what is right prompt me to write to you at this time. I feel well assured from the estimate you place on the female character that you will attend to my feeble questions in search of knowledge. Hey, what about that? That was pretty cool, huh? Okay, keep going. Will you be so good as to let me know how anyone becomes a Christian? What acts of yours gave you the name Christian? Oh, notice that question. What acts of yours gave you the name Christian? Okay. At what time did Paul, had, had Paul the name of Christ called on him? At what time did Cornelius have Christ named on him? Is it not through this name we obtain eternal life? Does the name of Christ or Christian belong to any but those who believe the gospel, repent, and are buried by baptism into the death of Christ? It's probably the question you had while listening to this podcast, isn't it? In reply to this conscientious sister, I observe that if there be no Christian in all the Protestant sects, there are certainly none among the Romanists, none among the Jews, he's talking about Catholics, I don't agree with him there, but that's okay, none among the Jews, Turks, pagans, and therefore no Christians in the world except ourselves, or such of us as keep or strive to keep all the commandments of Jesus. Therefore, for many centuries, there has been no church of Christ, no Christians in the world, and the promises concerning the everlasting kingdom of Messiah have failed, and the gates of hell have prevailed against this church. This cannot be. Therefore, there are Christians among the sects. Hey, next time somebody asks you, you're one of those Campbellites who think you're the only ones going to heaven. I just quote that to them. <laughs> but who is a Christian? Alexander Campbell asks. I answer, everyone that believes in his heart that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God, repents of his sins, and obeys him in all things according to his, to his measure of knowledge of his will. Boom. What about that? What about that? Let's keep reading. This is really cool. He's, he talks about how it's impossible for Christians to be imperfect in some respects without an absolute fortiture of the Christian state and character. Um, so, it's, in other words, it's possible for you to be a Christian without having it all right. Um, he says, whoever is wont to condemn others in that in which he is more intelligent than they, while on the other hand he is condemned for his Phariseeism, or his immodesty and rash judgment of others by those that excel in the things in which he is deficient. <laughs> in other words, as Jesus would say, if you're going to start judging people, you better be careful because the standard by which you judge others will be the standard by which you are judged. Now listen to this, folks. This is Alexander Campbell, page 412 of the 1837 edition of the Millennial Harbinger. Uh, you can look this up online. It's called the Lindenberg Letter. I cannot, therefore, make any one duty the standard of Christian state or character, not even immersion into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and in my heart regard all that have been sprinkled in infancy without their own knowledge and consent as aliens from Christ and the well-grounded hope of heaven. Wow. He says, should I find a, well, he talks about a Baptist here that's been sprinkled um, when he was an infant. If I find someone like that more intelligent in the Christian scriptures, more spiritually minded and more devoted to the Lord than a Baptist or one immersed as a, 
on a profession of the ancient faith, I could not hesitate a moment in giving the preference of my heart to him that loveth most. But Mark, I do not substitute obedience to one commandment for universal or even general obedience. Wow. Later on he says, the preachers of essentials and non-essentials frequently err. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, let's go on, though. This is important. He says, my correspondent may belong. This is on the next page, 4, 413 at the bottom. My correspondent may belong to a class who think that we detract from the authority and value of an institution the moment we admit the bare possibility of anyone being saved without it. But we choose rather to associate with those who think that they do not undervalue either seeing or hearing by affirming that neither of them, nor both any of them together, are essential to life. I would not sell one of my eyes for all the gold on earth, yet I could live without it. There is no occasion, then, for making immersion on a profession of the faith absolutely essential to a Christian, though it may be greatly essential to his sanctification and comfort. My right hand and my right eye are greatly essential to my usefulness and happiness, but not to my life. And as I could not be a perfect man without them, so I cannot be a perfect Christian without a right understanding and cordial respect, or rather reception, of immersion in its true and scriptural meaning and design. But he that hints and that thence infers that none are Christians but the immersed, as greatly errs as he who affirms that none are alive but those of clear and full vision. He goes on to say this, last quote here, But to conclude for the present, He that claims for himself a license to neglect the least of all the commandments of Jesus, because it is possible for some to be saved, who, through in uh, insuperable ignorance or involuntary mistake do neglect or transgress it, or he that willfully neglects to ascertain the will of the Lord to be uh, to the whole extent of his means and opportunities, because some who are defective in that knowledge may be Christians, is not possessed of the Spirit of Christ and cannot be registered among the Lord's people. In other words, if you're going to say, hey, I don't think that people have to agree with me to go to heaven. I don't think people have to have perfect theology to go to heaven, so I'm no longer, no longer going to study. You're probably not having the spirit of Jesus. And if you say, hey, I think people can be saved without getting baptized. And then you say, well, in that case, I'm not going to baptize anybody or preach baptism. Alexander Campbell would say, well, you probably then don't have the spirit of Jesus. His point is, is that there's not one act that we can point to as necessary for Christian life. We should be able to have fellowship with anybody, even if we disagree with their particular interpretation of baptism, right? So, anyways, that's from the man himself, A.C., and if you want to look that up again, that's the Lindenberg letter. All right, we've covered a lot of ground today, haven't we? A lot of ground, but it's uh, a lot of fun, I think, and I hope you have fun doing this, too. Uh, you know, there's people who disagree with this. Guess what? That's totally okay with me. I'll see them in heaven, and they'll be surprised to see me there, but that's all right with me. That's, that's even more fun if they're surprised. <laughs> who doesn't love a good surprise party, right? Listen, guys, I just want to thank you once again for just listening to this podcast. It it means a lot to me. Uh, you know, I felt like I wasn't given a good hearing when I started changing my mind on things. And uh, the fact that I have a couple hundred people or more than that a week listening in and uh, hearing me out, that just means so much. Baptism, baptism is important. It's Jesus that saves. Yes, baptism 
is, is a means to an end. Baptism is a sign or a seal or a pledge of that salvation that we have in Christ. But ultimately, it's Jesus that saves. We're saved because of Jesus' resurrection, not because you got your feet wet or your hair wet. Although there's some people who say that if your toe goes up out of the water when you're getting baptized, you're out of luck. Kind of like the guy who was born after the cutoff date uh, for the 20 years and younger rule going into the land of Israel. You know, the dude that was born on September 1st was looking at his buddy like, ah, have fun. <laughs> have, have fun in the land of Israel. I guess I'm out of there. You were born a day ahead of me or a day, a day after me. So I guess you're good to go into Israel. I got to rot in the desert, <laughs> you know, but I, uh, anyways, we get so caught up on this stuff that we forget to go love our neighbor as ourself. That's what matters. If you've been sprinkled, if you've been baptized, if you were baptized as an, as an outward profession of an inward grace, if you were baptized for the remission of your sins three times every year at church camp because you couldn't figure it out and you thought you were still lost, just go out there and love your neighbor as yourself. My goodness, isn't that what matters? Listen, go take a walk. Go out into the woods or drive up to the tallest mountain you can find around you and just look out across, just look at it. Just look out across the expanse at the at the at the plains, at the valleys, at the rivers, at the creeks, at the people hustling and bustling. And just really ask yourself, is the God who created all that gonna send somebody to everlasting torment to be tortured forever and ever because they misunderstood baptism? Come on. Ugh. All right. Thank you all so much for listening. Hey, I got a book out, How a 25-Year-Old Learned He Wasn't the Only One Going to Heaven. Uh, it's about 11 12 bucks on Amazon in paperback. If you want to get the hardback, it's more than that, but it's a lot of fun to read uh, in paperback and in hardback from what I've heard. It's also available PDF. Just go to my website, danielr.net, for that info. Hope you have a great day, and God bless.